it's still surreal that I've actually, you know, reached that level of financial freedom. And I'm just so thankful and so blessed and really living proof that if I can do it, you know, working full time with four kids, anybody can do it. If you create a plan, you have a really compelling reason for doing it. And you just have grit and determination for sticking to it and taking action every single day. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Anna Kelly. Anna is a real estate investor in central Pennsylvania and has recently achieved financial freedom after five years of deliberate investing. She'll share her story about how she got into real estate investing and what she did to retire so that she could have the free time to be with her family. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a five-star review and subscribe to the show to automatically get notified when a new episode comes up. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Enjoy. Anna, please introduce yourself and let everyone know, you know, how did you get into real estate investing? So my name is Anna Kelly, and um, some of you might know me on Facebook as REI Mom. I have a consulting and, and women's um, investing group called REI Mom, and that's where that name kind of came from. I run a women's only meetup group in central Pennsylvania called REI Like a Girl, and I have been investing in real estate on and off, Sean, for about 20 years but really got serious about investing about five years ago. And about five years ago, I really set out a five-year plan to be able to replace my six-figure income with rental income, You know, just that consistent passive income that would allow me the true freedom to be with my children um, and not have to work a full-time job. So I set out a five-year plan and I've just been aggressively buying small rental properties in order to, you know, meet that threshold. And I did it in about four years. And then I saved a year salary and six months expenses for all my properties over the next year. So it took me truly almost exactly five years from the time that I set out the plan until I retired last week. Congratulations. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I want to dig a little bit deeper. So you said you had a five-year plan that you were going to be where you are today. So that's amazing. But what did you exactly do? Like, what was that first thing you did? Sure. So backing up a little bit, even though it was like a five-year nose to the grindstone, here's my plan, you know, getting really serious. I had started to kind of do that back in 07, 08. And as you know, right after that is when the financial world kind of collapsed and, you know, real estate. I worked for AIG Life Insurance Company and we were you know, right in the middle of, of insuring all of these companies that went down. So I almost lost my job. Um, all the lenders that knew I worked for AIG wouldn't lend to me anymore um, while we were waiting to see what happened. So I had 12 units in 07 and 08. And when everything, you know, kind of collapsed, it was very difficult to get any more financing for me. And so I was kind of put on hold for a couple of years. And at that point, I was just so busy trying to figure out how I was going to survive financially if AIG went under and not being able to, you know, borrow money that I really didn't think very much about alternative solutions like, you know, buying on seller financing or not using banks or or using other people's money. So for me personally, it was like five years before the banks finally started saying, okay, yes, we see your job is safe. You know, we'll let you borrow from your equity. So a long journey, but five years ago when I asked the banks, hey, can I just borrow the equity that I've built up in these three buildings and 12 units? you know, that's when they said yes. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to start this five-year plan and and really get serious. And so I went to a real estate networking group meeting and I hadn't been to one in a really long time. And so um, the very first meeting that I went to, a seller stood up and said, hey, I've got this three-unit building that I want to sell. And it was in a town right next to me. So I walked up to him and said, let's chat about it. And are you willing to do owner financing? And he actually had a large capital gain he was going to have to pay. And he said, let's let's sit down and talk. So we met for lunch and put together a deal. And I bought that three-unit building that I knew I could convert to a four-unit. So it had kind of a a value play there as well. And that was my first deal back when I went, okay, I'm I'm back in it. And now I'm going to get real serious and, and figure out how 
you know, I can truly start aggressively buying and how long it would take me to replace, you know, my income with that rental income. That's awesome. How did you figure out that creative solution of, you know, knowing that you can convert the three unit to a four unit? Sure. So this particular property was kind of interesting. It was an old farmhouse and um, it had formerly been the house of an owner of a 55 plus trailer park or mobile home community. And what he did is he took his home and converted into three apartments at one point. And then he had this um, extra space that could have been made into an efficiency. And it was the former leasing office. So it was leased. It was it was for sale as a three unit plus this little storage building, but it had plumbing and it had a bathroom. And I thought, you know what, I can just turn this into an efficiency unit and make this thing a four unit. So that's exactly what I did. Did it require special permits to do that? No, not really. Because we already had we already had plumbing and it had already been kind of zoned for that. So I just had to get an exception to make an efficiency instead of an office. Awesome. So this was five years ago. I'm assuming you don't just have a four unit because you can't really tie off just one four unit complex. What happened after that? Sure. So when you asked about the five-year plan, um, I have a background in private banking. And so I was an advisor and, you know, teaching people what to do with their wealth once they had a lot of money, but I really didn't have a lot my own, on my own. And I knew a lot of my very wealthy clients had a lot of real estate. And so they would tell me, you know, as I told them, oh, you need to invest in stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Some of them kind of laughed at me and said, you know, I make a lot more than that in, in real estate, but they wanted some diversification. So I always knew that real estate was powerful. And I had done a lot of research before I started buying um, my 12 units in 07 and knew that if you could you know, buy them low, force the appreciation by raising the rents and lowering the expenses, you could really grow wealth very quickly. And so I, I had a lot of book knowledge. I had um, l- you know, listened to webinars and, and read some blogs and things like that. I just had never had really the money I felt to get started. And so when I did decide I really need to work myself out of my job because I worked for AIG and AIG was always um, it, it always came out on top and it was stable. But each division kept having layoffs and layoffs and layoffs. So I knew, you know, my time was probably coming as our division was being going to be sold five years ago. And it was kind of the impetus to make me say, I've got to figure something out. And I worked for a major corporation because I worked in a big city before I moved to PA and they let me work from home. But I knew, Sean, that living in rural PA amongst horses and buggies and farmland and chickens, it wasn't very likely that I was going to find another six-figure job working from home. And I needed to get creative and figure something out. And so since I had those 12 units and I had kind of experimented with property management and construction and learning how to be a landlord with those 12 units over several years, I knew that there was power in that. And if I could just tap that equity, I could figure out how to you know, continue to grow my, my portfolio basically by buying them, renovating them, um, refinancing them, and then just repeating the process, putting a tenant in it. So um, I, I had that background that led me up to that. And then I just put pin the paper and said, what do I make per unit on these? What can I make realistically per unit on these? And how many more will I need to buy to get there? Then how much cash am I going to need to actually do it if I'm going through banks? How many deals would I need owner financed? And I just created a formula like this is my target property. This is how much I need to make per door after I've renovated it and gotten a second mortgage on it. And then here's what I'm going to have left that I can can bank on. So I just backed into the number and figured out I needed 12 units a year over five years of like four unit apartment buildings in my area. And so is your entire portfolio in Pennsylvania? All of my portfolio right now is in Pennsylvania. It's all within about half an hour from my home. Wow, that's amazing. So yeah. you can drive up to any, or I guess any any building that has issues, right? Absolutely. And that was really critical for me. It's not that I necessarily recommend that everybody has to do it that way. But because I did work a full-time job and I have four children, they range from eight to 16, we're extremely busy. And so, you know, we have sports seven days a week. We go to church. We have different activities we're in. And so I really just didn't have time to drive out to places far away or to jump on flights if something happened. And so I just felt it was wisest for me to be very actively involved in purchasing and overseeing the construction In the beginning, to be quite honest with you, it was a ton of sweat equity. So my husband and I, you know, learned how to redo a a property and I painted, I can't tell you how many late nights before tenants moved in and 
you know, just learn to do everything completely on our own because we really didn't have the money to, to pay other people to do it at that point. So because of our time and our finances, it just made sense to buy local, put in a sweat equity, and then as you grow, start to kind of expand. So I'm actively looking at deals now outside of my market, um, but everything that I have to date is, is here in central PA. And did you hire out property management relatively soon or did you try to do it yourself for a while? So again, this kind of comes back to everybody has a unique situation and a family dynamic that makes managing properties, you know, either themselves or using a property management company um, more preferential. So for ourselves, my husband is a chiropractor and in 2007, we started his business with several hundred thousands of dollars in debt. And when 08 happened, um, also healthcare changed and reimbursements, what he was paid by insurance for chiropractic visits were cut more than in half in about a two year period. And in a little town of 7,000 people with five chiropractors, you can't just market your way to you know, more patients. So it took him a long time to just you know, break even on everything he was doing. And we figured it really didn't make sense for him to stay open five days a week, given you know, the, the flow of patients. So what he decided to do was stay open three days a week and the other two days a week work on putting in sweat equity into the buildings. So because it kind mm-hmm. of worked the dynamic and he actually kind of enjoyed it. It gave him an outlet outside of, you know, just the chiropractic. He really handled the maintenance stuff um, and updating the units um, in, in the beginning and still does baseline maintenance on his own as well. So I handle all of the finances and the tenants and the people. And again, because we're in a small town, there are not a lot of great property management company options. So I had a couple units that I gave to a property management company and said, let's just see how this goes. They were in a slightly rougher area, just a little further away. Um, I'd call them like a C minus to D plus. And I thought I experimented with, hey, these have super great cash flow. They're super cheap. Let's just see how how bad it can be. You know, we'll put those with the PM company. And it was a disaster, Sean. I mean, the, the PM companies hired administrative assistants to be property managers and maintenance people and people that had absolutely no knowledge of anything related to a building or people or the laws. And so we just had so much trouble finding good property management that we just decided, you know what, we, we can continue to do it. Our buildings were completely rehabbed each unit at a time. So very little goes wrong. And we also live in an area where there's an above average income. And so our tenant pool is, is hardworking, white collar and blue collar. We have very little vacancy. Um, they pay their rent. And, and so there's re- really not a heavy property management uh, on a day-to-day involved in what we do. So it just made sense for us for the units that we have now and how close they are to just continue to self-manage for now. Now, with that said, I do also own larger. So I also um, have a 73-unit apartment building that I bought with partners last year. We have a 31 unit that we're closing on next week as well. And so with those bigger properties where you can afford um, with the economies of scale and all the rents that you're coming, you can afford on-site property management. That's definitely preferred. And I love being an asset manager on those buildings rather than, you know, the property manager and the person that's having to call the contractors for maintenance issues. So, um, you know, it just depends on where you're starting. Are you starting with a lot of money and you can invest, but you don't have time? then you're going to hire everything out. If you're starting with no money, but time, you do it yourself until you can afford not to. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. So you talked about how you have some properties in like rougher areas in your neighborhood. You know, there's usually that trade-off uh, between like investing in a rougher neighborhood for higher cash flow and a better neighborhood for lower cash flow, but you know, higher potential appreciation. Sure. Do you have any advice between that balance and where, where have you fallen in that spectrum? Absolutely. So I cannot express enough that unless you are extremely experienced, have a lot of capital and can afford to not meet your business plan, not to go into a C minus or D or D plus area, because while on paper, they look like they cash flow. The reality is in many situations, and I'd say the vast majority of owners that I know who have attempted to have that type of portfolio your economic vacancy is just so high. So 
you know, when you're buying an asset and you're dependent on, on rents, but you're renting to people that can't afford to pay their rent, then you're going to have issues. Or if you're in an area that's high crime, you can offer the nicest property. You can update it and think that people are going to stay. But if they're worried about the safety of their children when they run to the store, they're not going to stay there. If the school districts are terrible and they want more for, the, for their kids, they're not going to stay there. So your vacancy rates are always so much higher than what you project and anticipate. And so is your economic occupancy because they're not able to pay. So a lot of them are delinquent. Um, the other thing that I have found is, and I've flat out had property management companies tell me, you know, you expect too much. You know, the, these tenants don't need you to repaint these apartments. You can just leave it like is. It's it's this particular city. And they kind of have a slumlord mentality because they mostly manage for slumlords. And so, you know, it's difficult and scary to manage them yourself, especially if you're a female or you have children when you're in an area that you don't feel safe going into. And most of the companies that are there, unfortunately, for small owners um, just aren't doing the best thing for the tenants or for the owners. And so um, I can't tell you how many investors I know that have gone in those areas hoping to turn things around and have been you know, disappointed, lost a lot of money and have had a hard time then selling because you don't have a lot of buyers that want to go into those areas. So I experimented with just a few because I bought them so cheap. I bought a three unit, for example, that I bought for $25,000 a unit, Sean. And I thought, oh my goodness, the rents are not much lower than they are in my nice class B, B plus area, but I'm buying them significantly cheaper, more, less than half of, of what I would pay in a nicer area. And so I thought how much, I mean, I'd have to lose a lot in vacancies um, for it not to go well. And believe it or not, it did not go well. So in a year and a half, I quickly sold those properties. I made a good profit on them, thankfully, because I bought them right. Um, but I would not go back and, and buy any more in that type of area, at least not where I am, you know, in my investing today. So yeah, what's the solution there then? Everyone should just stay away from those bad areas? You know, it's hard to say anything blanket everyone. You know, everyone has different <laughs> risk tolerances and different skill sets and different reasons for investing. So if you're just thinking, I'm going to put all my money there and I'm going to make this great cash flow, and you're only looking at cash flow, you miss out on a lot of other components of the investment. You know, how quickly can you sell it? If you have to sell it, can you sell it? What's your liability if somebody shoots somebody in that building <laughs> or if somebody breaks in and rapes somebody in that building? You know, there's a lot of things that you really okay. can't control and risks that you open yourself up to that people don't think about. And, you know, I've had these conversations with investors and some are like, oh, you're just risk averse. And I'm not risk averse. I will take, you know, very um, contemplative risks if, if I know how to mitigate the risks. But with those type of areas, the crime is really the biggest factor in keeping you from being able to um, offer safe housing keep tenants um, and be able to sell the building when you need liquidity. And so I just much prefer spending a little bit more money on a price per unit and being in a, a slightly nicer neighborhood. Maybe you're in a class B area and it's a class C building. So it's an older building and maybe that, that particular neighborhood is um, a little below moderate income, but you're still in safe areas where there are good schools and you can just kind of renovate that building to bring it up to the class B standards, you're going to make much more money in the long term on the fact that your tenants are going to stay, you're going to have low vacancy rates, people are going to be able to pay. So your economic occupancy is going to be higher. And you'll be able to sell those when you need to, because they're going to be very liquid. And they're the type of properties that people are going to want to buy. So they're just all around a much better investment. Um, and it doesn't take a whole lot more money to buy in those areas if you're buying an older building than it does to buy, you know, in a little bit rougher area, especially if you're leveraging it, you're only coming up, you know, with a 20% down. Great answer. I guess if you're learning how to get into multifamily, you go to someone like Dave Lindahl's bootcamp, and mm -hmm. they teach you about some buying criteria, like the Holy Trinity, you know, they want like 12% cash on cash returns or like 10 cap, <laughs> stuff like that. Honestly, when I was looking at that kind of stuff, it was very difficult to find something that matched those numbers, unless it was in the hood. Right. So I was wondering if you could share what are your buying criteria and what do you look for in properties? Yeah. So, you know, again, kind of the main factor 
is going to be being in a nice neighborhood where I'm I'm going to be able to make sure that I have a great tenant pool that if I have to get rid of somebody, I'm going to be able to easily re-rent it. Being in a great school district, at least much you know higher than average, above average, good rated school um, where there are some economic um, diversity in employers around. So for example, I like areas that are near hospitals. Um, in different recessionary times, there's been a lot of studies done in what areas did better and worse. And when you're kind of near a major hospital, those areas tend to do better during a recession um, where hospitals are, other businesses come. And so for my area and, and areas that I'm targeting out of state as well, I like to see a diverse employer pool. So I might have manufacturing, I might have trucking, I'll have um, education, um, near big colleges, hospitals, tech companies. So the more diverse that area is in terms of the um, employers there, that'll draw better tenant pool that you can choose from. And you're going to pretty well have a pretty stable asset. So that is super important to me and and something that is almost a non-negotiable now for me when I invest. But you have to balance that, like you said, with what are your goals for cash flow? How quickly do you really need to get there? And um, how much time do you have to invest to turn assets around? What kind of team do you have around you that might have experience that can, you know, kind of compensate for some of those factors that I might not like, you know, in in the hood, for example. Um, So you just kind of have to ask yourself what makes sense for you. But I like those types of assets. And I always target a 10% cash on cash return minimum on my money. And in reality, with the four units that I buy, when I'm buying them and I'm putting 20% down, a lot of times I'm using my own, you know, equity from one building to buy, you know, into another building. And my returns are, you know, 20 to 30%. And then even with a second mortgage on them, oftentimes, because I've raised the value of those properties significantly above what I bought them for, my returns are truly infinite. So if you buy right, and you buy in areas where you're buying well below market, which is absolutely critical, and you're renovating them and forcing that value significantly, then you create a property that is a 20 or 30 plus return property. You might not buy it at the cap rate that you think, but you've got to kind of balance what is the cap rate and what what is the potential that I have to raise the value of that property significantly. So for example, if I found a, a property that was going to make you know twenty thousand dollars a year. I'd say I don't want to pay more than two hundred thousand because that's about a ten cap. But if I know that I can pay two hundred five, but I can get a hundred percent financing, or the rents are three hundred dollars per unit below market, I might negotiate up to where I'm really kind of below that ten cap. But I've got so much upside that I'm okay with slightly overpaying because I've got all that upside or I've got really low rate leverage or owner financing that gives me kind of some extra benefits to push that that cash on cash and that IRR long term. I guess to summarize, you're looking for maybe a 10% cash on cash within one year or so of acquiring the property? At least, yeah. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So what what would you say to people who can't find that necessarily in their area? For example, we're here in the Bay in the Bay Area, yes. we're not finding 10% cash on cash. Right. What would you recommend for somebody like me who wants to get into multifamily, who wants to get cash flow on their on So their there's different things. And again, I think it comes back to how active can you be? Do you have more time or do you have more money? Okay. If you've got money and you can afford to hire a team or to partner with, you know, someone else that can, can help you take down deals that is kind of boots on the ground in another location where you can find 10 caps, then I'd recommend that you partner with someone else in an area that is producing those kind of cap rates consistently and give up a piece of the deal in in exchange for them being more active in the process. If you've got the down payment and they're in a, a position to manage it or oversee the property manager in that location from afar, then split the deal, you know, 50, 50, if it makes sense. And you'll do better on a cap rate you know, basis going in with a partner and going 50-50 in those kind of areas, then maybe you are, you know, trying to buy at a four or five cap in, in the Bay Area or in California. So I think mm-hmm. that's probably the one of the wisest ways to do it if you've got some capital to start with. Um, because you're not going to be able to offer a partner much else other than finding a deal um, 
or overseeing kind of the asset management. If they're doing more of the work, they're going to want you to you know put in some of the capital. Um, and the other option is you know just on your own go out and you know buy properties from afar, working with property managers and brokers that you know have a have good contacts that can say you know I've got this type of property. Maybe it's a turnkey rental, for example. So in PA, there are turnkey rental providers that they go in. They buy properties, you know, dirt cheap, they rehab them, and then they put a tenant in place for you. And um, they put in a property management company that they either partner with or own. So you can buy that rental turnkey and you might not get a crazy deal on the property, but you're still going to get a better cap rate than what you're going to get in the Bay Area. So that's kind of a really, truly passive way that you could do it. And then a third way is to partner with a lot of other people on a syndication And the thing about apartment syndications, a lot of them right now are very overpriced. You know, where we are in the economic cycle and the building cycle, it's crazy what people are paying for properties. You know, they're buying them four cap, five cap, six cap, seven cap. And when you look at that on a tax adjusted basis and and inflation, you're really basically parking your asset for no money. You know, that that four to six, seven percent is basically wiped out. Um, just by the fact that you've got taxes and inflation. So I wouldn't invest in a syndication that was only paying that. But if I could invest with a small group of people that were buying properties in an area where they could offer me a nine or 10% cash on cash because they're buying, you know, really well or in an area that's um, very stable, but not as competitive as like um, your major metros where all the other big investors are coming and the hedge funds that are trying to park cash then, you know, you might be better off just investing as a truly passive investor and getting a nine or 10% cash on cash return without really having to do any of the work that's involved in owning your own. So it really just depends again on you and how much time and cash you have as to what the right strategy is. Nice. And how are you acquiring your deals when you were first getting started? Honestly, a lot of them I got off of MLS at first um, because I targeted four unit buildings. And the main reason that I did that is because my area didn't have a lot of big complexes and the couple that they did have, I knew I could never afford. So I didn't want to be buying singles because the cash on cash are not great on singles. And if you have one month that it's vacant, then you might lose your entire year's worth of return from one tenant not being there. And so singles, while there is a place in most portfolios for single families and well-placed areas that you can buy below market, they're not really the way that you're going to quickly grow a portfolio and and cash flow. And so similarly with duplexes, they typically are sold um, higher than what we would pay as investors because a lot of people want to buy them to live in one and rent out the other and they overpay. And so my only real option at that point was to go to the four unit buildings I didn't have the liquidity required for commercial loans for five units and plus at at one point. And so even though I'd find some deals that were a little bit bigger, they wanted six month liquidity on everything that I owned and they wanted more net worth than I had. Um, And so it just made sense for me to say, hey, I'm going to buy another four unit. And so I bought the four units. um, And that really was the way that I built my portfolio, mostly on buying a four unit building well below market that needed a lot of work in a really nice area, going in and and updating those buildings, lowering the expenses, and then raising the value quite a bit, cashing out with a second mortgage and using that to buy another, you know, building that would have like another four unit that had more cash flow. So that's, that was kind of my sweet spot. And there weren't a lot of other investors in my area, quite frankly, buying them. So they would sit on the market And nobody was looking for them because most people that were just getting started were looking for singles or duplexes and they didn't have the cash to buy bigger or they were going after much bigger deals because they had more money than I did. So those four units, I was one of the only people buying them up in town for a couple of years. Now, now, you know, people have kind of noticed that my area is so nice that they're trying to come invest here. Um, But I still get a lot of them off of MLS. I also have bought off of auction sites like Zome and Hubzoo and auction.com, small multis, and even some singles that we have bought and and decided that we were going to raise the value, cash out, put a tenant in it, keep them and and take the equity to buy four units. 
And um, quite a few word of mouth properties have come to me as well, just through attorneys and other investors who um, I bought, for example, a four unit from a retiring landlord. And then he told someone else, hey, um, we just structured a seller finance deal and she's saving me all my capital gains and you should call her when you want to sell. And I took down another property that way. So, you know, between MLS and auction sites and word of mouth, that's been like 95% of my properties with maybe the other 5% coming from mailings. So you mean, it sounds like you have a really nice thing going on. And when I hear stories like yours, or if I read something in a book and I hear all the breakdowns and the stories of how everything worked out, it sounds pretty simple. Like just look at the numbers, buy right, and you're good. But <laughs> you know that's not really how reality works. So are there any challenges that you encountered that you didn't expect and that wasn't written in books or podcasts? As oh, far for as you sure. Know? You know, I, I like to tell people two things that I think, or maybe three things if I can remember them, that are, that are really important to know. And one is when you're buying rental properties for your own portfolio and trying to grow, you know, a, a stable cash flowing portfolio of properties, you rarely ever buy something that's truly passive. I say and believe completely that passive income is built on the blood, sweat and tears of active income. It is hard work. It's not complicated. The process is simple. The process is repeatable and you do it over and over again, but it's hard. So it's harder to find deals than you might think. Sometimes it's harder to finance them than you might think. Sometimes it's harder to rehab them um, at the budget that you think you're going to be able to rehab them or to get tenants out than you might think. Um, it's harder sometimes to find good tenants and keep good tenants than what the books might tell you, depending on your demographics. So everything has a learning curve and everything has um, hurdles that will pop up that you've got to learn to jump through and that you've really got the grit and determination to push through. Because there are you know, some seasons in this investing time that I've had over the last five years and really over 12 years that I've been in PA where I wanted to quit, where it was hard, you know. You're not only doing properties, at least for me, I was doing it part time. So, you know, I'm working a day job. I've got four kids. I pick them up after school. I'm in at least two different sports places almost every single day of my life. And then I'm handling the tenants and handling maintenance calls and handling emergencies. And then, you know, you have a storm come through and you have flooding that, you know, areas never flooded in in years and years and years. And all of a sudden something comes in and you've got a flood in four basements and a roof blow off a building. You know, I've had those things happen like all at one time and you're going, Oh my gosh, I've got a day job. I can't leave here. I got to pick up my kids. These tenants are screaming. I can't get any contractors to come out because they're all out everywhere else. You know, at the same time when the whole town's underwater or when there's six inches of snow and you've just got to learn to juggle and handle everything that comes. So self-managing and building your own portfolio comes with a lot of time commitment and a lot of hurdles and it can get pretty stressful, but you just have to have the mentality that no matter what comes, I'm playing the long game. I'm going to get through this and, you know, it's going to get easier as I go. And, and it has, you know, for some people that are not working a full-time job, maybe you don't have kids and you've got a lot more time on your hands. It may not be nearly as stressful to go out and start building up a portfolio but it's just really going to depend on you and the type of asset that you're acquiring, how much money you have and how much of your own time you have to put in them until you build that, that net worth. That's crazy. Is that the kind of natural disasters you see in Pennsylvania? It's like tornadoes and stuff. Yes. You and you it's amazing, Sean. I moved here from Texas and you think of tornadoes in Texas, but I, I experienced maybe three or four, you know, warnings really my whole life. And I moved to central PA there's earthquakes, there's tornadoes, there's hurricanes that come this far out. And there's, uh, um, what else? Flooding. So, and snow, lots of snow. So you have things like that that come up that you just, you know, don't expect and natural disasters you just really can't control. So you can have your building set up with sump pumps. Like we had sump pumps in, in two of these basements. And this one tenant had, I guess, unplugged a sump pump, who knows when. So it didn't work and it filled with water. And then the other one um, just failed. And so, you know, you think that you've mitigated every risk and then things happen. Um, we lost a roof during a, a tornado and, you know, there's just always things that happen. So you just got to be prepared for that stuff. And 
have enough cash set aside that you can handle it, you know, when it comes. I mean, but your own personal house wasn't affected by those natural disasters, right? I actually, I had a period last spring, Sean, where we had major rains. Like I said, I had like three or four basements underwater. I lost half of a roof on a property and we lost shingles on our own new house twice because we had like weeks of storms and winds and everything coming in. So all that time and we're going, oh my gosh. And we had big insurance claims. I had a pressure relief valve go bad in a dirt floor basement on a multi-unit that created a massive amount of mold in about a month period before we discovered it. Had to rehome all the tenants in that building and go through, you know, claims. And this was all at the same time. So last February, March, I thought, I'm never going to buy another property again. This is, (sighs) I, I can't handle it anymore, you know? And, but we got through it, but, you know, insurance policies have caps and limits and deductibles and tenants get ticked off and leave and threats of lawsuits. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong that, you know, you think, oh, these things are never going to go wrong. So you just, when you get into this business, you have to be prepared for bumps in the roads, unexpected. You know, there's a reason that banks want you to have six months of expenses liquid. None of us investors ever want to do that, but you know, it's wise because things do happen. So, um, you know, you just prepare for all kinds of things. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's like when it rains, it pours, right? It all happens at the same time. Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's all worth it, Sean. If I could say anything, it's all worth it. Like I would do it all over again. You know, I worked on really for 10 years, I've worked about 80 hours a week in order to try to get to this place of financial freedom. Five years, like with a strong plan and the bank's actually cooperating, but it's been a lot of hard work and a lot of time, but I've gone literally from negative couple hundred thousand net worth to several million dollars worth net worth and high, you know, nice six figure rental passive income in five years. And it's like, what else is ever going to get you there? There isn't anything that I know of, you know, I've invested and and worked with very high net individuals who've invested in everything from commodities to stocks and mutual funds and hedge funds offshore. And there is nothing like real estate, especially multifamily real estate to grow wealth um, out there. Yeah, that's amazing. So we're talking about financial freedom. Go ahead and let everyone know what just happened. So I retired. I actually gave my retirement notice. Thank you so much. Almost two months ago, and last week was my last week at my job. I had been with AIG for over 20 years, and um, it's still surreal that I've actually, you know, reached that level of financial freedom, and I'm just so thankful and so blessed and really living proof that if I can do it, you know, working full-time with four kids, anybody can do it. If you create a plan, you have a really compelling reason for doing it. And you just have grit and determination for sticking to it and taking action every single day. Um, you can, you know, reach that level of financial freedom. So it's exciting. You know, if I never did another deal ever, we would be financially content. You know, obviously my my vision is higher. You know, now I want to have you know legacy wealth for my children and teach them how to do real estate and teach them how to make wise money decisions and continue to buy you know much larger multifamily buildings and with other investors and teach them how to invest, you know, passively. And then maybe eventually, um, you know, as a general partner and actively. So the sky's the limit, but I don't feel that pressure that I have to buy another deal because we, we've reached that level of financial freedom now. It's, it's just amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, but now what are you going to do with your free time? Now <laughs> you have the entire day all to yourself. What are you going to be doing with that time? Well, you know, Sean, for me, it's really, I know I say retirement and people are like, oh, you're going sit, to sit at home and relax. It's like, no, I still have a full-time real estate business that I run. It's just that I'm going from two businesses, both my job and my full-time real estate business to one, you know, so I'm still going to be working full-time just handling what I've got um, and, and also going after some, some larger multifamily and starting to syndicate. So my goal for myself and my financial freedom is really that when my kids are home from school at the end of the day, that I am wife and I'm mom and I'm not answering, you know, I'm not up till midnight, one o'clock in the morning, like I have been for years handling everything that I need to juggle because I've been able to get it done before four o'clock in, you know, in the afternoon. So 
my plan for retirement is two hours a day, really just focusing on myself and and prayer and time with God and working out because I really haven't been able to do that consistently. And I've gained a lot of weight over the years just trying to, you know, balance all these other things going on. And, you know, five hours a day, just really working hard and working. Um, you know, I'm pretty good at um, compacting my time and being really efficient and getting a lot of stuff done during the time that I'm I'm working. So my plan is five hours a day working. And if there's days that we want to travel, it might be an hour a day. And the next day it might be, you know, an eight hour day. And I work a little later than the kids are home from school. But my, you know, vision of freedom isn't just, you know, sit back and relax forever. It's, it's work hard during the day, but focus on, you know, taking care of myself and, and, you know, doing things for me now when I've just been doing, you know, taking care of everybody else until then. And then working a few hours a day, and growing the real estate business, however big it can get, allowing me to do it within that number of hours a day. You know, I never want to build up a business so big that I end up working 80 hours a week again because I've done it for 10 years. You know, so I'm at the point where I, I want um, slow growth that's manageable, that allows me to have a completely stress free evening with my children and my husband and just be present with them at night and be able to you know, enjoy each other in these last few years I have with them at home. And like those five hours you work. They can be whatever time you want because right. of your own schedule. Exactly. So exactly. That's, that's the best feeling. Absolutely. Now, I want to kind of dig in a little bit deeper. Sometimes when like entrepreneurs, we work a lot, uh-huh. but we end up just spinning, like especially new investors, right? We end up just spinning, we call it spinning your tires. Yes. Like we're not really doing anything. We're working on something. We're spinning our wheels. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So what does, what, what will you be doing for those five hours? Like what does five hours of work look like to you? Sure. So I think what's really important is that you get really clear about your vision. What are you aiming for and what are you trying to accomplish? And I think that everybody in starting to get into real estate or whether you're already in it, you've got to say, you know, why am I trying to do what I'm doing in these five hours? What's my ultimate end goal? And how can I grow my business and spend those hours that I'm working in a way that gives me balance in my life now and not just make you completely overwhelmed and, you know, filling yourself with busy work. So some people you work hard, but you're stressed because you're dealing with 20 things. And some of them are like things that you aren't really making money for doing. You're just spinning your wheels instead of really focusing on the strategic things that are going to get you to that next level. And so what has helped me is I, I always, every single day, I look at my plan and every single day I look at my budget and I, I created, you know, this massive spreadsheet that has my whole life on it. And so, you know, I had on here, okay, I need this many properties. My goal is I better buy a property this month. Well, all the little things that happen with the property management and the maintenance and the tenants and all the things that could distract me as much as possible, I'm going to like try to get my husband to do that, or I'm going to call contractors to handle it. And I'm going to focus on finding deals, calling banks, getting new relationships, um, moving money around in a way that it's strategically there so that my credit score stays super high, but I'm borrowing from, you know, like creating business lines so that they stay off my personal credit and then using those lines for my rehabs and then paying them off. I mean, those kind of things that are going to help you to keep a good credit score, find deals, find money and continue to grow. Those are the things that I'm going to spend most of my time on. All those other little things that come up, come along, you know, I, I time block myself. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to give myself an hour. Now before when I worked full time, my lunch break hour was to handle all the little piddly stuff that had to happen during business hours, you know, going to the bank or calling a lender um, you know, meeting someone for a lease. So I time block and say, this hour is going to be spent doing all of the urgent things for today that I have to do that really aren't going to get me anywhere. And outside of that hour, I just don't do them, you know, unless it's an absolute, you know, emergency. So time blocking um, in categories and being able to say, you know, this hour today, I'm focusing on um, money making activities. Um, This hour a day, I'm building networking and relationships. So I'm maybe having a call with investors or other brokers um, for in in markets that I'm going after larger deals now. Um, And and so you kind of structure your time based upon what's going to make you the most money, what has to be done um, and what's going to help you to do it in such a way that it meets not only your five year plan and your three year plan and your one year plan, but your vision for life and, and balance. 
Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Especially like thinking about, you know, what is the end goal? Why are you doing the work in the first place? Yeah. So and it's really the only thing that's going to that, keep you going when you get overwhelmed with your time. Exactly. Now, you mentioned that you want to start getting to multifamily syndications. What does that look like to you? Sure. So about a year ago, I had met my goal of, you know, six-figure passive income and a $5 million um, five million dollars worth of property. That was kind of my my goal was you know six figure passive five million. And I met it after four years. And I said, now that I'm here, I need to you know save up a bunch of money, but I want to go bigger. So I've always wanted to do bigger deals. I just didn't really have the time to go after them. So my plan has always been get to five years where you build your own portfolio of of buildings that you want to keep long term for 20, 30 years, so that you can depend on those. And then start building bigger chunks of cash without flipping property, because I've done that and I don't want to do that, um, you know, and, and get bigger chunks of cash and additional cash flowing um, income coming in from rentals to allow us to, you know, help pay for our kids' schools and weddings and go on vacations and all those things that, you know, are outside of just your day to day. And so I knew that I wanted to take down larger multifamily deals. It was kind of in my 10 year plan. So a year ago, I decided to get really aggressive into just re-educating myself on um, managing larger complexes and the differences between the smaller ones. You know, the financial fundamentals are very, very similar, if not almost exactly the same. It's just that you're buying, you know, 10 units instead of five or 100 units instead of 10. And so I knew what I really needed to do was to start building my network so that I could not just rely on my own liquidity and my own cash to continue to invest. So I started reaching out to some people that I knew also had, you know, 100, 200 units and were already very experienced in real estate, flipped some properties, but wanted to go bigger and and get into larger multifamily. And I ended up last um, August, September, finding a really nice off-market deal that was 73 units and it had about 40 storage units. And I found the deal. I got it under contract and um, under pressure because it was being listed the next week. And I reached out to an investor and said, hey, let's put this deal together and let's let's syndicate it. And we I, I work with SEC um, compliance and hedge funds in my day job. So I understood, you know, the rules around solicitation and what a private placement is. And I've reviewed hundreds of PPMs. So I had a background that made me comfortable with jumping in and saying, okay, let's solicit money and let's do it the right way. But we went out to our first investor and he really liked the deal. Um, It was a a very strong deal, uh, stronger than a lot of these, you know, other multifamily syndications that you can find right now. And it was in our backyard. So we went to him and he liked the deal so much that we really were able to just take it down with the three of us. So we didn't have to, you know, go to an SEC attorney and, you know, produce a PPM and solicit a lot of investors. We just did it with the three of us as more of a joint venture. And then we found another one. So we have a 31 unit that we're closing on next week. And while, you know, doing these as a joint venture, I'm also very actively evaluating deals in certain markets um, and have been for, you know, six to nine months but I haven't found the right deals that I'm willing to put out to an investor with the right fundamentals that I feel like are a stronger, strong enough return with the right amount of risk for where we are in the market cycle. So I just haven't taken down a larger one, but we're prepared to syndicate and, and looking to, to actively do that. And so the main thing that I'm trying to do is just to educate myself on um, how to go out and find other investors, especially for, for deals out of state outside of what's just in my own network, and then just to really hone in on um, the complexities of, of the SEC solicitation and, and making sure we're doing it the right way if we're reaching out and starting to network with other co-sponsors to raise money you know, for multiple pools of people in, in the same deal. So it's just kind of educating myself on, on that piece of the multifamily where all of the rest of the, the life cycle of buying and selling, I, I feel like I've gone through with the smaller stuff. Yeah, that's awesome that you were being so resourceful to be able to close a large deal. Yeah. A lot of people were kind of scared of doing it because they think they have to take care of it all by themselves, but that's not the case at all. Right. And I, I think, you know, as you do deals, you're always going to have fear. In everything that you haven't done, you're going to be a little scared. And you just got to learn to like push through the fear and have confidence in yourself. The first time I went to a bank to ask for money for a four unit building, I was scared. 
the first time I asked a seller to seller finance a, a, a loan, I was scared. The first time I asked someone for $2 million for an investment, I was a little scared. But yet I had enough confidence that every time I pushed forward and pushed through a fear and made myself do it and it went well, that, you know, the worst thing is somebody could say no and then you do it again. So you just as you take calculated risks and as you take small risks and push through that fear, you become much more confident in yourself. And then you build up that experience of going through lots of different things that you were afraid to do. And you realize, you know, you, you can do it. Everybody that's doing the, the next big thing that you think is so amazing is a human being just like you and I, they have their own life, their own family. They have the same fears and emotions and confidence. It's, it's just that they're willing to take that risk and they're willing to put themselves out there and, and just go for it. And so that's what it takes to be successful is just to say, I've got this and I, I have something to bring to the table and I'm offering other people an opportunity. I'm not just begging for money. Mm-hmm. And was that deal found from a mailer? No, it was honestly, I just feel like I was very blessed to find it. I, I ran into the seller who I was an acquaintance of, but I didn't really know that he owned that building. And we just chance ran into one another literally two days before he was listing it. He had the brokerage agreement. He had already you know, gone through the marketing package and came, you know, had a listing package with the, a large brokerage and, and was going to be listing it the next week. So I ran into him. And when he said, I've got a building for sale, it's, you know, I want seven and a half million dollars for it. I said, oh, great. I'd love to see it tomorrow. And I knew, you know, he's like, I'm listing it next week. So let me see it tomorrow. And he was leaving town that weekend. So because he knew me and he knew that I had bought a lot of stuff in our area and we had an acquaintance relationship, he said, yes. And I think if a lot of other people had said that, he would have said, no, I'm listing it next week. Just talk to my broker. So nice. the experience that I had had and the reputation I built in my area really gave me the end so that I could capitalize on that opportunity when it came. Um, but, you know, it was kind of serendipitous that it that it even came to me. Um, but I was able to negotiate it and, and then bring in the partners. And, and because we all had equity and net worth and experience um, in real estate, it was very easy for us to finance it and take it down. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So, yeah. So we're about to wrap it up for today. But before we go, I want to touch upon these two things that are pretty unique. Uh, one is obviously your REI mom, uh-huh. uh, the platform you're using, and also uh, your book that you co-authored with a bunch of other people. Yes. So I was wondering if you could touch upon both of those things really quickly. Sure. So REI mom, you know, I, I've had some branding that was really geared toward being a mom that I thought kind of helped me. So when I first started out, I would do mailers and I had branding that was mom buys houses. And I was the only one that wasn't just a guy buying houses. And I can't tell you how many women called me that wanted to sell their house or their four unit. And I do have some single family. I own 10 single family houses still to this day that are just really nice rentals. But I wanted to really let people see who I am and that I'm a mom doing real estate and I want to buy their property. And honestly, just my branding helped open up a lot of doors where when someone would call me and I'd say, you know, I'm not this cutthroat real estate guy that's going to offer you 20 cents on the dollar. I'm a mom that's investing. And the reason I'm doing it is because I want to be home with my kids. And I told people that, you know, this is what I'm doing. I work full time. I'm doing it on the side. And I really want to create a win-win for both you and your family and me and my family. And it was true. And, and branding, it allowed me to have those conversations. And honestly, most of the people that I talked to that I had a, that had a property that I really wanted to buy, when I just shared my story and they reached out to me because I am a mom and a, and a wife trying to take care of my family, it opened the doors to allow me to get some things under contract that I probably wouldn't have been able to. So with that said, I also have a heart for other women who want to be home with their kids and don't see a way to do it. And, you know, maybe have stayed and watched, you know, all these different shows or webinars or books and feel like I can't do it. I work, I've got kids, it's overwhelming because I want to encourage them that they can do it and they can um, build wealth that lasts and, and change the, the dynamic for their family forever. And so I really have a heart for other women wanting to be successful in real estate, not just to become wealthy, but to take care of their family. And so I, I started REI Mom with that same, you know, kind of branding to show that, you know, I'm, I'm a woman that does some coaching and mentoring and, and investing and that wants other women to, you know, come alongside. And if it makes sense what I do, 
I'm happy, you know, to help them learn how to get in deals, either either as a, a general partner or a limited partner. And I run a meetup group now locally, um, specifically for women in real estate. So it's really something that um, pulls at my heart to, to be able to help other women in that way. When it comes to the book, um, I was very blessed and fortunate to be asked by Kyle Wilson to be a co-author in this book called Resilience, Turning Your Setback into a Comeback. And Kyle is, um, he's a former business partner with Jim Rohn, who a lot of people know and follow, um, really one of the first leadership um, gurus, if you will, but just teachers on, on business and success. And he was also the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Entrepreneurial Soul. And when I met Kyle last year at a mastermind and told him a little bit about my story, he just it, it resonated with him. And he said, I'd love to have you be a part of this book. And so um, I wrote a chapter in this book just on my my story of resilience. And, you know, it, it's a long story. And, and I highly recommend that you all grab it, not just for my story, but for you know, the stories of 30 different authors who have gone through really difficult things in life and have really come through the other end and the other side, really just because they had that grit and resilience to push through that no matter what comes, they're going to be okay and they're going to succeed. And for myself, you know, I started as um, the oldest child of a single mom in Section 8 housing in San Antonio, Texas. And so I grew up very poor, my mom um, was in several very abusive marriages, so I've spent nights in shelters, and we were on food stamps, and really just wished for a better life, and 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 that if I just had money, I thought you know life would be different and and things would be better. And because I saw the challenges that my mom went through, it really gave me a drive, even at a very young age, to succeed and to be successful. And so it pushed me to, you know, graduate high school early and graduate college early and work full time while I went to school because I always had that whatever it takes attitude that I'm going to be different. And, you know, you learn that it's a lot more than just the money and the drive, you know, as you grow and you mature. But I just always wanted something better for my future and for my children. And it, it drove me to push through. And so you know, I had lots of plans to to succeed in a different way. And, and even with the real estate, you know, thinking 20 years ago I was going to flip my way to real estate riches and it didn't happen, you know, because of the timing and different things. But in every obstacle that came, I just was determined that I am going to be successful and I am going to do what, what it takes to um, give my children better and to um, not have them be latchkey kids and to get home with my babies by, you know, growing wealth just to kind of um, to take over and, and replace my income. So um, the drive and the resilience is, is just really what I think has helped me to be successful more than anything else. You know, people that are, you don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be great with numbers. You just have to have grit and determination and, and be willing to do whatever it takes and to um, push through difficult experiences. And so that book was just something that um, really was a, a heart effort for me. And I was just so blessed to be a part of and, and the, the people that have read it that have reached out to me and just, you know, thanking me for sharing and, and being raw. There's so many stories like that in the book. And, and so many of us face setbacks and think, I can't do this, or it's just, just too hard. I'm not going to do it again. And when we listen to the stories of other people that have overcome something, it helps us to muster up that, you know, I can do this and it is going to be okay and, and helps us to have some hope and, and um, excitement and encouragement to keep pushing forward. So I was just really blessed to be a part of it. Yeah, I remember reading that book when you sent it to me and I finished your story within an hour and I was just so inspired and amazed that, you know, you came from such a humble background and to... Mm -hmm. You know, overcome those challenges and be where you are today. It's just like, wow, anything is possible. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. How can people contact you if they want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing or hear more about your story? Great. You know, social media is something that everybody's on today. If y'all want to follow me on social media, I am Anna, REI mom, Kelly. And I also have a Facebook group called Creating Wealth That Lasts with REI Mom where we talk about um, different ways to grow real estate wealth and to make sure you're doing it in a wise and conservative way that lasts. And you can find my website at reimom.com and email me at info at reimom.com. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. 
everything was super inspiring and you just gave up a lot of great knowledge. I'm sure everyone that listens to this episode will learn a lot today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from speaking with Anna. If you want to get good deals, you need to specialize and find your niche. She was able to start by buying fourplexes at a good price in her neighborhood because no one else was looking at them. Lower priced properties in the hood may have great numbers on paper, but in reality, you'll have more issues and your true cash flow will be impacted. Buy properties in good locations in a good school district. If you buy in a bad area, you're going to get a lot of turnover, which can be one of your biggest expenses. So instead of trying to buy a good property in a bad location, you should look for a worse property in a great location. And when evaluating a deal, look at the potential of the building to see what you're able to pay for it. If you're out of state and want to get into cash flowing properties, there's three things that you can do. One, you can partner with somebody. Two, you can go to a turnkey provider. And three, you can be a passive investor in a syndication. Passive income is built on the blood, sweat, and tears of active income. It's simple, but it's hard work, but it's all worth it. And finally, proper branding, like calling yourself the REI mom, opens up huge opportunities that you normally wouldn't have. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.